his time. Maybe. Yes, sir! From their little studio in South Africa, it's time for The Long and Short of It with Simon Hill and Dylan Rogers. Hello, you golfing keen bean you. Welcome to The Long and the Short of It. Nice to have you along for yet another chat. My name's Simon Hill. And I'm Dylan Rogers. As always. And today, Dill, we speak to another Ryder Cup captain. We've spoken to Gentle Ben. Yeah, Ben Crenshaw, yeah. Today, we speak to his opposite number. Mark James from the infamous 99 match at Brookline. The Battle of Brookline. And Mark James, the captain for that, is he's so much more than obviously a Ryder Cup captain. He's an accomplished player in his own right. Yeah. He's also a hell of a funny commentator. Yeah, and I was uh, I was curious about what we'd get out of Mark. I mean, I think there's almost this perception of this grumpy pom, you know, back in the day when he was uh, the Ryder Cup captain, and and in his in commentary, he certainly has that persona, oh, he's, dry, he's very dry, and uh, you know, perhaps I was you know I was anticipating. Someone less than friendly, put it that way. And how wrong we were. No, absolutely. I think he was a great value on, on a range of, of subjects. And I think uh, certainly one of my favorite chats so far. Before we get to our chat with Mark James, though, Dill, just a little bit of housekeeping. Please, after you finish listening, if you do enjoy the chat and you enjoy the podcast as well, please like and rate it. It helps get the podcast out there to more people as we try and grow our audience and spread the joy of golf around ah, the world. Yes. Kumbaya, my friend. So please, yeah, if you can find it in your heart to like and rate our podcast, we'd really appreciate it. Please do. Okay, that's the business end of things done. Sit back, relax now, and join myself, Simon Hill, Dylan Rogers, and of course, Dale Hayes, as we chat to former Ryder Cup captain, Mark James. Well, Mark James, hello and welcome to the podcast. How are you? Where are you? Uh, We have to ask these things in light of the times we live in today. Where are you at the moment? Well, as you might expect, I'm at home. (laughs) (laughs) Doing what I've done, the only sort of semi-work I've done over the past few months is um, is put a half-decent shirt on and sit in front of Zoom with uh, just in my underpants. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's uh, like everyone else. <laughs> and, and where is home, Mark? Uh, north of England, not too far from Leeds, a place called Ilkley. Uh, actually very nice at the moment. Sun's out, uh, sort of uh, 10 degrees centigrade, so... Uh, yeah, it's it's not too bad right now. Yeah, given the weather you guys have had recently, that's positively balmy. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, we had a we had a dodgy patch, but um, yeah, nothing uh, untoward really. It's uh, you know it's fairly normal. Well, joining us on the chat, Mark, uh, you may be aware, is none other than your old pal Dale Hayes. Oh, I remember him well. Yeah, Hayesy was one of the most naturally gifted players we we'd ever seen in Europe. Uh, he was actually playing in Europe before I joined the tour. Um, that's how incredibly old Dale is. I mean, uh, you know, he, I think he was already 45 and I was sort of 22 when I came on tour. But uh, yeah, he was a brilliant. I've never seen anyone able to hit uh, uh, long irons and drivers off the deck as easily as Hazy. Uh, he was phenomenal. Come on, Dale. Mark, you're, you're Mark just getting back to, to where you live. You've always, you've always pretty much stayed in the same place, haven't you? I mean, that's where you come from. I was never uh, in the south of England. Now, I, when I married Jane um, in 1980, uh, I moved up to Yorkshire just a couple of hours um, from where I sort of grew up. And uh, we've been here ever since. So, yeah, it's uh, great. All our friends are here, family or family were here. Um, but, um, yeah, it's a nice part of the world. And um, it's very simple in Yorkshire. If uh, you know if people don't like you, they don't talk to you. <laughs> 
Mark, how, how, how would you describe the north of England versus the south of England from a golf course and golf approach and general golfing, if that makes any sense? Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a little less money to spend on courses up here. It's, uh, you know, it's a, it's a very moneyed game down south. Um, uh, the courses are, are pretty flush up here. Uh, money's a little tighter and um, uh, it's a little harder with the climate. Quite a difference from here to sort of the London area. But um, we have some great courses that, I, you know, Hazy will remember places like Moortown or Woodley, Ganton, Ilkley, where I'm a member, is fabulous. Um, right in the in the bottom of the Wharf Valley with a, a massive river running through it. Uh, so it, it's a beautiful part of the world. There's some really good courses. Well, I think it's appropriate that you talk to a bunch of guys from Africa because your first professional win was on African soil, wasn't it, back in 1977? Yes, indeed. Lusaka, uh, yeah, Lusaka Open. Yeah. My, my, very first, my very first trip um, as a pro was to South Africa. Uh, at the start of 76, I came down for five weeks. The first tournament was, I think, um, uh, could have been Glendower. Um, and um, there was some phenomenal scoring. I mean, you know, Hazy was shooting 63 and and um, you've got, you know, even guys like Teeny Brits, John Faree, and about, there's about at least 11 Hennings who were all shooting <laughs> below 60s. And uh, I, there, was a, there was some sort of international match before the event, and I went out to watch a bit. And I mean, the standard was phenomenal. I thought, this isn't, this isn't a good start to my pro career. And uh, anyway, I got up on the, by the first tee uh, of the first round, my first professional round. And I was just having a swing with my driver in the semi-rough and I hit a stone and half of my insert in my old persimmon driver fell out. So I had to, had to play <laughs> the whole round hitting it sort of high and off the toe. It was, uh, and I missed the cut by about 10 and, um, well, the guys just shot lights out. I mean, just incredible. Uh, the standard was amazingly high, particularly down there, the guys that knew those courses. Uh, but it was brilliant to see and uh, get a taste. And, and of course, I went. I ended up going, um, I've been to South Africa, I don't know, 15, 16 times since. Uh, I love the place. And Glendale is still a fantastic golf course and it hosted the SA Open a few years ago. Rory McIlroy came out. I think Ernie managed to convince him to come out and play. And it's still considered a really, really good test of golf. And watching them, I just couldn't believe the way they burnt that place up. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, uh, what, what, what they do sometimes uh, is incredible. I mean, particularly now, the distance they hit it. But uh, I, think, I think I won uh, at Glendower one year in about 88. I think the South African TPC, I might have won it at Glendower. So uh, I finally got to grips down there. But... Um, yeah, I mean, the standard of golf, I mean, there's always some players that seem brilliant, but if you look at the golf these days, it's quite incredible what they're doing out there. Um, but in a way, course designers have played into their hands because to combat the long hitting, they've made courses longer, which is absolutely the wrong thing to do. You need to make them tighter and make the greens longer and narrower uh, so that, you know, if you're in the rough, even with a nine iron, it's quite hard to... To hit a target it's uh, the, the reaction to long hitting has been uh, totally perverse uh, mark when you think of some of the the, the features of, of the changes of the game uh, since those early days in the in the mid 70s and you out and tour, i mean obviously the equipment is one thing the the golf courses is another you know what are the, the the standout features of where the game is today compared to when you were first out on tour well i think the the, uh, the 
biggest difference is the driver, the size of the driver head. Um, you know, even really good players in the 70s, we could be embarrassingly bad on an off day. Whereas now you can usually get the ball away with a with a big headed driver, um, but they've been great for the um, senior tour and I think the ladies tour. Um, they've given more distance shots look more impressive for both those two tours. So I think overall it's been great, great for amateurs, um, but um, it's just difficult with the main tour because they they hit it so far now. There, um, you know, it's um, the trouble is. To, to get them to play with um, under different rules to the rest of the world would be very awkward. It would feel like a different game. So I can understand the reticence of the governing bodies to bring in ball rules or club rules for the for the main tour. Well, obviously that, that segues quite nicely into the distance debate, Mark. Where are you on it uh, in terms of you know club heads and, and changing the ball and how do they rein in the, the lengths that these guys are hitting it out on the, on the, on the main tours? I think the biggest problem is probably the ball. Um, the ball doesn't bend around now. You know, in a, in a left-to-right wind in the 70s and 80s, the ball could go, you know, you could hit it sideways. Um, but the ball now really doesn't bend that much, uh, which which means you can, you know, give it a rip and it, you're unlikely to go more than 15, 20 yards off the fairway. And, uh, you know, you can usually wedge it onto the green. So there needs to be more trouble wide of the wide of the fairways. And the greens, as I say, need to be narrower targets. You look at, there's a, there's a hole early on in, uh, in the Emirates course in Dubai, uh, five or six, I can't remember, with a really narrow green. It's one of the best holes you could ever play. And it makes people think when they, you know, if they're, if they're in the rough, suddenly they, they, they're not hitting the green. Sorry, chaps, I just want to pause there. Dale, you're back. You can hear us clearly, hey? Yes, I can. Yeah, All right, I brilliant. can hear you. Can you hear me, Mark? I can, Dale. Yes. Welcome back. Did, Thank you. Were, you, you know, were you off to, did you go off to just, get a snack? Just, <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't get a snack. I got a full lunch. <laughs> I, eat, I eat a lot and I eat quickly. <laughs> <laughs> just, okay. just a small well, antelope. <laughs> Mark, it's, it's interesting, you know, that you now agree with the authorities because I think it's safe to say in the early days... You weren't you. You didn't take instruction very well from authorities, did you? I didn't react well to authority, but I think what's happened now is that the authorities finally agreeing with me. <laughs> <laughs> Taken a while, hasn't it? Yeah, oh, they, they finally learned. Now they all come round in the end, don't they? <laughs> Mark, I want to ask your nickname's Jesse. Now, I always think well, Jesse James, the American outlaw. Is is that where it comes from? Yeah, simple as that. Started in the uh, very early '80s, I think. Um, quite quite a lot of guys from who I started playing with in the '70s uh, still call me Mark, but everyone who joined the tour in the '80s and onwards calls me Jesse. Yeah. Dale and I were chatting a few days ago, leading up to this this conversation, and uh, <laughs> you hold. And I'll let Dale take over because, but I'll set it up. But you hold the the record for the highest European tour event round of 111 strokes. And the reason why Dale needs to chat about this was because it was in 1970 and it, it was in Sardinia. And I think you won there, didn't you, Dale? Yes, I did. But I don't think um, I don't think uh, Mark was around when I won because I think he left after a couple of days. And yep. um, I, I think, well, I think I'll let you tell the story, Mark. But I mean, it had to do with the fact that you were fined, I think, the week before. I was fined, I think, uh, the year before. Um, I played in Portugal and uh, uh, I had a... Uh, knee injury that's it and um, I, I didn't have a caddy and I'd, I'd have had to 
Well, I couldn't find a caddy at that course. The Portuguese Open was over two courses. Couldn't find a caddy. I'd have had to pull my own clubs at a place called Palmares, a really hilly course. And uh, I just, I really didn't fancy that uh, with a dodgy knee. And uh, I got to the first tee about five minutes before my tee-off time and said, sorry, guys, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not going to play. I shot 75 at Panina. And Hazy, you know, that in those days, that was a pretty good score, especially for me. So, um, you know, it, there was no um, temper involved the next day or, or trying to get out of playing. Uh, I, I just thought it best not to. And they fined me 50 quid. And I thought, well, that's just ridiculous. So coming back to Sardinia the next year, I had a wrist injury. It started hurting uh, during the second round. So I decided not to uh, withdraw, but to play in one-handed from the uh, ninth. As uh, you can imagine, it's not that easy. Uh, shot 111. And I think it still stands. It does indeed. <laughs> well, Mark, funny enough, that golf course, that golf course in Sardinia, there were a number of different records because I think my last round score to win that tournament, I think, was also a record. I don't remember now whether it was 78 or 79. Really? But that was also a record. And I think there was also a record there for the amount of players that ran out of golf balls. <laughs> yeah, it was a hell of a course. Was it called Pavero? Pavero. Pavero. Yeah, interestingly enough, I've actually played it. And I'm sure they shot a James Bond there. I think it was the spy who loved me. Yes, they did. They did absolutely. You're 100 percent right. In fact, we stayed in the hotel that they used for that. And uh, lovely story. Tony Jacklin, after the first day, came down to dinner and said, "Guys, you have never seen robes, the softest cotton I've ever felt in my life. When I leave here on Sunday, I'm taking those robes with me." So on <laughs> Sunday, on Sunday, he packs his suitcases, goes out and plays earlyish in the morning comes back, grabs his suitcases, catches a flight. He was living in Jersey in those days. Gets home to Jersey. He says to his wife, wait till you see these robes I've got from the hotel. Opens up the bag and the robes are gone. He was so angry that they'd <laughs> stolen the robes that he'd stolen. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> Guys, you know, you, you mustn't let this this record that Mark holds in, in at Sardinia and Pevero Golf Club, you know, get to you because I want to tell you that Mark James was an unbelievable golfer. He had a short, wristy golf swing, but he knew exactly where the golf club was all the time. He drove the ball brilliantly. He was a wonderful iron player. At times, his putting did let him down. And I think he would probably agree with me. Had he been a more consistent putter, he probably would have won three, four times the amount of tournaments that he won. I think that's uh, that's overly kind. But yes, my, my putting was uh, inconsistent. Yeah, I was... I was um... I wasn't too bad when I was on a decent streak. I could hold enough to, you know, do well. But uh, uh, if I was sort of having a dodgy week, I was pretty darn dodgy. But it's, it's better to be that way than sort of always a little, a little iffy. I'd rather have reasonable spells and bad spells. But probably, uh, I'm not sure it would have made too much difference to the amount of uh, tournaments I'd won. I might, I might have been a bit better in the majors where the greens are tougher, faster, uh, uh, and uh, you know more difficult to cope with. But... Um, uh, it's very kind of you anyway, Hazy. <laughs> how many, I mean, obviously you had good finishes in the Open Championship, but how many other majors did you get to play in? Probably not that many. I only played one Masters in 1980. Uh, I mean, it's amazing when you look back. Um, I mean, you know, it seemed fairly normal then, but in 89, 
I won three times uh, on tour, lost a playoff in another, finished fifth on the money list, and it wasn't good enough uh, to, to get uh, in the Masters the next year. Um, there was no top 50 in the world exemption to any tournaments then. That didn't come in, I think, till the very late 90s or even early 2000s, which is a great rule. And, uh, and obviously there was other stuff involved in taking that decision um, by the um, by all the world's majors. But um, yeah, it was it was hard to get into American majors. The USPGA would probably be the best. They, um, uh, they gave our tour quite a few invites starting in the uh, 80s, I think. Um, the U.S. Open, uh, a little less so. But uh, I never enjoyed the U.S. Open courses. They always seemed to be, uh, green seemed to be a bit uh, uh, difficult for me. So, But I always liked the, the U.S. PGA. I want to go back to your, your Open Championship record because you had five top five finishes. I mean, there was a fifth, a fourth, tie third, tie fourth, tie eighth. Which of those do you think you came closest to, to, to lifting the carriage jug? I'm not sure I came all that close in any of them, to be honest. Um, I, I think if I had come really close, I might have uh, uh, had a bit of a, a, <laughs> a shot might have gone through me. I'm not sure how, how I'd have coped, but uh, uh, not really in any of them was I desperately close. I, I had a chance in um, 81 going out, but um, um, Bill Rogers, uh, you know, he, he sort of just edged away and uh, it, it seemed a hard course to make birdies on. So I think he won relatively simply so no I, I didn't come desperately close but um no i just i, I love the open i mean uh, it's a it's a fabulous tournament and those links courses when they're presented how they should be presented and uh and these days they do a, an incredibly good job um you know they are magnificent to play in half decent weather i just want to go back to dale's comment about your putting mark and the fact that you didn't putt perhaps as well as some other players, which meant that you weren't in contention for as many majors. Is that fact what drew you to the Ryder Cup and what made the Ryder Cup so special for you? I think what makes the Ryder Cup so special, apart from being a team thing, and uh, you know, it's the only real big team thing in golf, um, is the fact that it, certainly in the 70s and 80s, because we weren't getting in all the other majors, uh, the, the next biggest two things were the the Open uh, in Britain, obviously, and uh, the Ryder Cup. So the Ryder Cup was a really great goal to to shoot for, and and if you got in it, it was a big thing, and it, it still is. You know, to have Ryder Cup player after your name is um, it's a feather in your cap. So um, yeah, it was um, it was a realistic aim and something that everyone wanted to do. Mark, I I, I agree a thousand percent with what you're saying. I mean, the Ryder Cup was a huge deal from the time that I started in the early 70s for for, uh, for British players. And it, it is a massive deal. I mean, never mind to have the fact that you played in one Ryder Cup, but you've played in multiple Ryder Cups and you've been the captain. But you didn't get off to a very good start in the Ryder Cup. Are you referring to 77 or 79? <laughs> Take or both? a pick. Both. Both. Let's talk about both. <laughs> uh, was, uh, well, I didn't play. I played badly in '77, and we were hopelessly outclassed. It was uh, Britain and Ireland, of course, against America, and um, uh, they reduced it to less matches. I think it was only five four balls one of the first two days, and five foursomes the other of the first two days, and then uh, the singles. It, it, I think it, the theory was that if we play less, there's, there's more chance of springing a surprise. Um, but uh, it didn't work out very well. I, I didn't play very well. I was a little out of my depth, to be honest. Uh, it was the first Ryder Cup for Ken Brown and myself and uh, Howard Clark. And uh, Howard wasn't bad. Ken and I, it was a bit of a shock to the system. We were a bit out of our depth. 
slashing it all over the place and uh, trying to survive. But um, you know, by by seventy nine, um, we were we were both uh, a lot better. Um, but um, we both we both um, re- sort of uh, there was a sort of reacted badly to authority situation a little bit. Um. You were naughty, weren't you? Not as naughty as people thought. Um, a lot of stuff was said that was totally untrue. Um, I think I'd. Um, this was sort of the end of my um, uh, a period where I'd um, uh, really uh, clashed with uh, the European tour authorities, and I think they were probably out to get me regardless. Um, I'd been fined an awful lot uh, up to then um, for various things, and I think they saw this as a chance, and evidence was given that's simply untrue. Um, a few things that were done by either I don't know who or by another player, which I knew about, um, but uh, it didn't matter. Um, they they were, they wanted to find me. Uh, regardless, um, I wouldn't say I was whiter than white, that's for sure, but uh, it was nothing like the, the stuff that was presented. This aversion to authority, is it something that always stuck with you? Thinking back to school days, for example, had you always given the middle finger to the powers that be? I didn't have to. They they sort of, they saw the cut of my jib uh, the minute I was in the sort of um, uh, big school from the age of uh, sort of 12. Um, they, they used to have something on... Um, Fridays called CCF where everyone gets dressed up in army kit and goes sort of walk about and maneuvers and that and uh, the teacher simply said James I don't think this is for you and this was only I'd only been there two years I think I was 13 or 14 at this point he said I don't think this is for you James he said go and see the uh, go over there with those other nerdy boys and queue up for choir <laughs> so I queued up for choir and the, the teacher played a note on the piano uh, and um he said, can you sing that note? And I'm a hopeless singer, literally hopeless. So, and I didn't even need to try to get it wrong. He said, I don't think this is for you, James. Uh, he said, go over there. Now there's, a, there's only about three of us now over in another corner, um, me and uh, two even nerdier kids. And um, we had to go around the town with a trolley collecting old newspapers from pensioners. Which, which is, I don't know what that was for, and take them, bring them for some recycling or something. Uh, fortunately, two years after that, um, uh, they tell me to just go and play golf because it's something I seemed half decent at. So uh, that was my Friday afternoons then. It was a lot better. Sounds wild. <laughs> In the Ryder Cup, you, you played for Great Britain and Ireland and, um, and then the changeover when the, the Continental players came and joined. Jack Nicholas was instrumental for, I think, that suggestion. Yeah, he was. But at the same time, you know, Seve had sort of come along and uh, Tony Jacklin was convinced to become the, the captain of the, of the team. Um, how would you just, – just talk about all three of those things and, and how would you rate them in terms of importance? I think they were important in different ways. Um, I think the most important thing for our tour and, and possibly the Ryder Cup was Seve. Uh, Seve just raised uh, continental golf to a whole new level and he was so charismatic and brilliant for European golf and loved playing in Europe as well. You know, he didn't he didn't disappear off to the States uh, for 20 weeks a year. I'm not criticising anyone, but he, he just didn't. You know, he, he wanted to play in Europe and that was fantastic for our tour. Um, I think uh, Jack... Um, who, uh, who I, I, I think is still the uh, greatest of all time. Uh, what he said was absolutely right. It needed doing and um, it made it very competitive and took nothing away from the event at all. I mean, you know, <laughs> I think uh, if anyone thought it was going to be watered down a bit, the minute Seve appeared, they realised it wasn't going to be. 
uh, and um, Jacqueline, uh, he was captain and uh, he, he wanted to bring it to a whole new level. So Tony did uh, some great stuff. He wanted us to go out on Concord. He wanted everything to be at a higher level. So, yeah, Tony was instrumental as well. I mean, all three things, you're absolutely right. All three things were, were, were key in the development of the European tour, uh, the transition of the Ryder Cup to Europe, America, and um, the elevation of it in, in, in all ways to the level it reached um, in the sort of uh, throughout the 80s was the transition. Let's get back to your game, particularly. In terms of longevity, you know, you are, are right up there with the very best that have played on the European tour. But you were kind of then in the 80s when, when Woosnam, Lyle, uh, Seve, Faldo, and I suppose to a certain extent Greg Norman, while, while he still played a little bit in Europe, um, you were kind of overshadowed by those players. But you, I mean, you were a, a, a top, top player before they came along, a top player while they were there, and a top player when they left. So there's a backhanded, yeah, well, there's a backhanded compliment if you've ever had one, Mark. Yeah, I know. Sorry, I have to go now. <laughs> yes. uh, well, you're sort of right, but really, um, uh, throughout the 80s, I, I had a, quite a slump. Uh, I played Ryder Cup 81. I didn't play another Ryder Cup till 89. So, um, you know, in that mid-80s period where we had all those players and, of course, Langer and... Um, uh, guys like Nick Price, who was uh, obviously fantastic, but went off to the States as as you would because you know he he wasn't from Europe. Uh, you know, yeah, they they were better than me at um, at the time without question. But I started playing really well again in '88, uh, and uh, and and for the period sort of '88 to '95, probably I was I was. Um, I was pretty good and I could compete with them generally. But um, we had we had about five or six players that you mentioned who were brilliant players. Uh, and uh, they were sort of in the top 10 on and off in the world or should have been. Uh, I can't remember how the world rankings worked. But, I mean, we had phenomenal players. So to actually compete with them was, was not easy. Um, to have such a clutch at a, a peak probably in 87 when we had, uh, I think, you know, those pairings in the Ryder Cup, Faldo, Woosnam, Langer, Lyle, and Seve and Alathabel uh, in the 87 Ryder Cup, Millfield Village. I mean, that was a stunning uh, set, uh, trio of pairings and um, uh, absolutely brilliant. And, of course, all of them uh, exhibited a fair amount of longevity. Shall we go back to the 89 Ryder Cup? And you say you saw your return to the side. You said that it was the first time that... You- You've been really, really nervous. How how different was that Ryder Cup to the ones that you you played in before? The, the, basically, it got a lot bigger. At 81 at Walton Heath, we, we sort of... Uh, there's always a dinner on the Sunday night uh, uh, after the whole Ryder Cup the, the, called the Victory Dinner. Uh, we, we used to call it the Defeat Dinner. Um, <laughs> because because the, the pretty much the, the result was, uh, uh, you know, a foregone conclusion. But... Um, over the 80s, sort of, you know, 83, they got close and 85 won it. 87, they slaughtered America on that, their, you know, in America, which was incredible. So by 89, the amount of interest was huge. The crowds at the Belfry in 89 were monumental and they knew we had a, a, a good chance of winning. Um, so um, it was it was vastly different to 81 when there was just a f- relatively few people wandering around saying, oh, my goodness, they're doing very well. They're only three down. <laughs> I think it was also the first Ryder Cup to be televised live in the United States. Was it? Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, it took a long time, didn't it? Um, Mark, it's it's obviously tough to talk Ryder Cup and to, and to not 
focus or at least address the 99 match? I mean, you've obviously spoken extensively and written about it in your book. Your reflection sitting here now in, in 2021 when you look back at, at Brookline in 99? Well, I mean, it's uh, a lot of stuff happened that was really shocking. And, um, you know, you've only got to read the book to uh, sort of, you know, refresh refresh the memory. It's uh, it's incredible looking back at some of the stuff that happened. Uh, but, you know, protocols have been put in place now and it's all a little more under control. There's a lot more security around. And Brookline uh, lent itself to um, very claustrophobic areas on the course where the crowd were a bit too close uh, so it was a it was an unfortunate series of events you know the one event i'm probably least worried about looking back was um the, the memorial rushing onto that 17th green yeah when justin leonard held that but you know that that sort of thing can happen uh and it was one of those times when you know it was just uh, it was a crucial putt i mean a ridiculously crucial putt to hold from 40 odd feet uh up a tier and um, it's just one of those things. And yeah, they, they said sorry. And, and I don't have a really don't have a problem with that. But a lot of other stuff that um, the abuse from the crowd and, uh, you know, my wife was spat at. And, you know, there's just stuff that went on um, uh, that the whole week that really shouldn't have gone on. And that, that was what really was uh, not good about it. But, you know, r- running onto the green. Yeah, you can argue that, uh, well, maybe they should have offered a half having trampled all over Lazabal's line. Uh, while jumping up and down. But um, at the end of the day, it was the other stuff that um, I think was a little hurtful to a, a lot of the team. Obviously, a lot going on leading up to that at match as well, uh, Mark. And obviously, you know, one of the things talked about was uh, the leaving out of Faldo and, and Bernard Langer, um, you know, two successful players in Ryder Cup history. Your reflections on that decision and, and how that played out in the in, in the year or two to come? Well, I mean, it's very odd with Nick because um, he was nowhere near getting in. And even if he'd won the last tournament, he would have been outside the top 25 in the points, I think. Uh, and the last event was Munich. And he said to me um, uh, at the start of the week, I, I bumped into him. He said, he said, Mark, tell me, um, what do I have to do to get in the team? I said, I said, Nick, I've always said I wouldn't pick the team on one event. So, you know, I think even if you won, I probably wouldn't pick you. And I wasn't going to lie to him uh, because lies just come back and bite you in the backside, don't they? So so um, I was just honest with him and uh, he didn't like that at all. Uh, the Langer decision was a lot harder. Um, he, you know, if you look back at his golf that year, he'd had a... You know, I based uh, sort of a lot of the picking on the 12, 14 weeks right before the uh, selection. And Bernard played really poorly. Uh, I mean, re- for him, um, you know, it's, um, I put him in now the way he's been playing the last 10 years. <laughs> but uh, yeah, then he was playing really poorly. But I mean, what a, what a play. What he's doing in America is just Same. quite incredible. At, 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 what is he, 61 or something now? I mean, quite incredible. Just um, magnificent. And you also copped a bit of flack for, for keeping Jean van der Feld, Jarmo Sandlin and Andrew Coltard on the bench. Yeah, it was that, again, another tough decision. But, um, you know, we played the first morning and um, uh, we did well. And I thought, well, I'm, I'm not going to change much now. We're off to a good start. Keep it going. Then the first afternoon, it was obvious stuff was happening uh, with the crowd. And um, I could see it deteriorating right through the whole week. Uh, you know, guys were getting called just abusive names <laughs> it's just quite incredible i had a long chat with monty on the on the um 
evening of the first day, he was really getting some stick from the crowd. And just incredible, really. Just, you know, name calling. It just beggars belief. I really tried to talk him around and uh, he, he responded fantastically, went out the next day and continued playing well. But I just felt I'd got guys out there uh, in deteriorating conditions that were playing really well and giving us a lead. And uh, I thought it was dangerous to change it. So I didn't. And yeah, I can absolutely understand that, you know, when you lose, you look back and think, well, maybe I should have tried something else. But uh, at the time, I think it was the right decision. Uh, We had to try and get points up and try and keep our noses in front and maintain the lead. Uh, You know, you you adjust your tactics according to uh, the position you're in. And I believe they were the right tactics at the time. Um, And, you know, ultimately, we very nearly pulled it off and we were pretty much written off going over. Uh, they had a they had a good team. Of course, their team wasn't helped by the the appearance money thing. They they wanted appearance yeah. money for playing and all that. So, you know, psychologically, we weren't in a bad place heading over. But but um, the the team played uh, tremendously, and nothing but admiration for all of them. Uh, Mark, what's uh, what's your relationship with Nick Faldo like? Because there was also the incident with the with the letter that he wrote uh, to the team that uh, that in your book it appeared that you you tossed that in the bin. I didn't toss it in the bin, but some someone tossed it in the bin. I just felt it was disingenuous uh, at the time. Um, but no, I, I don't have a problem with Nick. In fact, I, I think he's a great analyst, probably uh, possibly the best analyst on TV. Uh, so no, I don't have a problem with Nick. And in fact, I've told him I like his work in the States. Uh, I think he fits in very well over there. And that's nothing to do with him being over there. <laughs> Far away. <laughs> no, it's nothing to do with that. I do understand. I think he, he's, uh, he's uh, found a, uh, a place where he um, actually uh, is extremely good. Um, but I, no, I don't have a problem, Nick. But then, uh, you know, if anyone um, says anything to me that requires a response, I will always say it <laughs> a bit like hazy, I would imagine. There was an opportunity on that green when uh, that putt was held to almost have another another repeat of the concession. Do you think Ben Crenshaw missed missed the boat there? I think it would have been an incredibly generous thing to do. But yeah, I mean, I can understand uh, someone saying maybe he should have. But uh, you know, the chances are that um, uh, Chema. Maria Lafaval was would have missed the putt and it wouldn't have affected things. But um, so yeah, it would have been um, probably a, a lot more generous than the concession from '69. Uh, yeah, you, you know, I, I think you've got to be a very special person to be that clear-headed to make a decision like that. You know, Nicholas Nicholas has done it twice. He did it at Fan Court during the Presidents' Cup when he he suggested they call it a draw. You know, when it was getting dark. And Nicholas just seems to have that clarity to be able to make those decisions. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And that was probably the right decision then. But um, there was another situation in the President's Cup, wasn't there, when um, a couple of the players wanted to call it a draw. And that, that doesn't go down so well because, it, 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 it you know, it, it, these things should matter. And um, I'd like to see that um, take off the President's Cup because, uh, you know, that should be great. But, uh, uh, you know, given time, I think... Um, I think the international team may perform better, but uh, uh, I, yeah, I'd like to see that um, get the blood running uh, a bit like the Ryder Cup does. Oh, look, we had Ben Crenshaw on the podcast a few weeks ago, and uh, what I picked up from that, because obviously we asked him the question, was that he was sorry, but uh, <laughs> and they apologised, and he <laughs> says we were rightly chastised for it, but 
We're not that sorry. No, no. He's. He, I think he was over it fairly quickly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't think he loses sleep at night. Uh, I, d- I don't hold anything against Ben. I played with him on the, uh, a number of times on the Champions Tour just uh, three or four years after that Ryder Cup. So, no, he's a good friend of mine, a nice guy. But, but Mark, just to sort of wrap up with your Ryder Cup and, and your involvement there, what kind of a captain were you? Because you had, I just look at the different kinds of captains that we've had. You know, someone like Langer, perhaps who was very analytical and clinical, or someone like Paul McGinley, who I think maybe modelled himself on on the Sam Torrance style of of leading a team. What kind of a captain were you? The more time goes by, the more captains seem to feel they they need to try to cover every tiny little thing, from having pictures on shoes to this, that, and heaven knows what. Although, admittedly, Ben put pictures on his shirts. I, I think they, in a way, it's it's almost a psychological thing where if they if they go into it so deeply. They feel they've done everything they can. It's like when you're properly prepared for an event, you, you, you feel you've got a better chance. I, and I'm not sure that uh, uh, applies particularly in the case of captains. But as a captain, I was, um, I was very analytical. Um, as a stat- statistician by trade from uh, school, um, so, you know, I did a lot of stats in the, uh, during the season um, of uh, what players were doing and how they were performing. And obviously, um, I investigated Brookline, see how the course favoured those who played certain ways. Um, so, yeah, I was analytical in that respect. But um, uh, I think I, I tried more to protect the players psychologically. Um, it, it's a fine line with a captain. You don't want to be too much out there. I've seen captains occasionally in the past sort of take over. So you don't want to take over the whole thing and make it about you, but you want to sort of be their spokesman and and absorb anything that might come their way. I tried to sort of keep them almost safe and I I, I drummed it into them. You know, you're going to have to sign every autograph this week. I know the crowd could get dodgy this week. I had no idea how bad they would get. So I I tried to get them to be nice to the crowds, drummed it into them, uh, sign every autograph and do everything you can to to, uh, make friends with the crowd which ultimately didn't work. But, you know, I was sort of trying to um, act as a buffer and uh, just give good advice. And, uh, you know, I had two, two assistants, uh, captains, um, Sam and Sam Torrance, Ken Brown. They were great because, you know, you always know that um, they have a really good feel for the players. Uh, so, you, you know, you know mentally how things are doing. Yeah, so I don't know. I think every captain's a bit different. I would say I was a better captain for an away match. Uh, and uh, someone like Sam, who's a little more extrovert, probably a better captain for a home match. And that's the way it worked out. Your best partner that you had in a four ball, if you could choose a partner of the partners you'd had in a, in a four ball, your best partner in foursomes, who would they be? Oh, I don't, I'm not sure I could pick one out I, I never got paired with any of those top six I think they'd probably ask to give if they could give me a wide berth but um, I had some really great partners I played with Ken in 77 that was brilliant we were really close friends uh, 70 and 79 uh, um, 81 played with Sandy Lyle he was stunning I mean he was just uh, line him up and say go and, um, you know, he was brilliant. He was a wonderful player at the time. He won the money list two years before and was, uh, you know, brilliant. Uh, had a ten, about a 10-year uh, big-time career, and he was stunning. Uh, Steve Richardson in 91 was fantastic. Howard Clark, 95. 
I say the only bad one was I played with Sam once in 93 and he, he'd been sleepwalking the day before and had a broken toe. So that wasn't a match, <laughs> wasn't a match made in heaven for the day of the 93 Ryder Cup. The guy who once shot, the guy who once shot 111 and a man with a broken toe. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, We did well to lose seven and six. <laughs> and in all those matches... The best win that you had, the, the win that gave you the most satisfaction and, and maybe the most disappointing loss. Um, I was most disappointed in 93. I'd had a good season and uh, I think I got oh, no points out of three matches. And I remember sitting down at, after play in the team room and um, actually next to Barry Lane and he had a similarly poor match. And uh, we, we were just sitting there with tears running down our, our faces um, on the floor, backs against the sort of windows, looking inwards to the room, and uh, yeah, it was that was it was just um, so disappointing. Um, and the best one, probably '95, uh, Howard Clark and I played the first morning, and we got absolutely slaughtered by couples and love on a long wet course, and you know what those could be like—absolutely uh, brutally ruthless, a pair of them. <laughs> and uh, we didn't play again until the singles, and it was very hard starting the first morning not playing to the singles. Howard found it particularly hard. I, I just sort of kept hitting balls and practicing and playing a few. So, but um, we went out at uh, Howard went out number two, and I went out number three in the singles. And uh, we both won our matches. And I beat uh, Jeff Maggot three and two or something, and uh, that was really satisfying to 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 win that singles. And we ended up winning the match, so that that made it uh, all that much better in '95. And um, you know, we didn't think we had much chance going over. The our team didn't look that strong, and theirs didn't look at all weak. Um, but yeah, that was a brilliant win in '95. Well, 2021 is a Ryder Cup year, whistling straights. I want to get your take, Mark, on on Europe's dominance in recent times what, what, what do you put that down to and obviously you know, the fantastic players yes but is it their ability to gel together better as a team I, I, I said it's really hard to know um, I can't imagine it is these days you know I, I've met some of the younger American guys these days they seem nice guys I, I can't believe you know they, they don't get on with each other I, I just I just don't believe it I think they do get on with each other what's missing I, I don't know I think we just seem to respond better to to that situation. And, uh, you know, I always think, you never know, it might, any time there could be a, a winning streak for America. I think last time there were some mistakes made by um, the American side at crucial moments. And I, I, that happens sometimes. Uh, but looking back, it's very, very easy to say that was the wrong decision and that was a, that was a, should have been done differently. Um, I have no answer. What do you think, Hazy? What do you think? Why why are the Europeans doing better? I think, you know, I think that for so long, it has been such a big deal for Europe, the Ryder Cup. And, you know, it's, it's, it's always been a massive event. And it hasn't been that for the Americans until much more recently. And so I think that's one thing. But I think generally speaking, I think the European players get on with each other a lot better. You mix with each other more socially than the Americans do. I'm not saying the Americans don't get on. I mean, Justin Thomas and Jordan Spieth um, look like they, they're really good buddies. But, you know, I don't think they I don't think they go to dinner with each other like we do. And no. I'm not you know, even sure it happens as much today as it used to in our day. But, you know, they we used to socialise so much more than the Americans ever did. And I think, I think that's got a lot to do with it as well. But I think the biggest thing is it's just so much... It's so much more of a big deal to the Europeans. 
Yeah, yeah, you, you, you're probably right. I mean, I certainly remember in the 80s, we used to socialise to excess. <laughs> Dale's still doing it. He hasn't stopped. <laughs> yeah. It's, really, it's time for tea nearly now for Hayes, isn't it? <laughs> you, don't have, you don't have to worry. As Simon Hobday said when he got to bed at 3 o'clock and was on the tea at 7, he said, don't worry, I'll sleep quickly. <laughs> Just like to get your comments and your thoughts on on Tiger Woods and and what's happened recently. Obviously, tragic stuff, and for a man that's been through so much and had so many operations and just well everything that's happened to him off the course. Um, your your take on on what this means for the game? I don't think it's crucial for the game of golf. I mean, you know, Tiger's sort of passed his best now. I, I thought. Uh, the Masters 2019. Uh, I mean, that was just phenomenal. And um, I, I was, you know, saw the news about his accident and Pachane and I, we were really sick to our stomachs because, you know, he's just coming back from the backup and, you know, he's had some wicked luck, but, you know, he's lucky to be alive. And it sounds as though they, um, the, the wound was probably, they got him in quick enough for the, for for it not to be uh, infected and the blood flow was restored pretty quickly to the lower limb. So, I, I, you know, I think he's got every chance. Probably more of a worry than the the, the, the fibula and tibia is the uh, ankle. Feet and ankles can be very, very difficult. Um, you know, I tapped a toe on just very gently on something of six months ago and broke a metatarsal. I mean, it just takes nothing to to for your feet to get injured and um, you know coming back from foot or ankle stuff it depends how bad that is but you know he's lucky to be alive and I just I wish him all the best I really do he's had enough crap in in uh, in the last few years so yeah I really hope uh, uh, he comes back it's uh, he'll probably be out this year I guess and uh, ultimately looking towards seniors but um, I really hope he gets back to uh, doing what he likes to do and I think he's he's starting to realize he does he actually does like playing golf and uh at tournaments and um you know I think ultimately Seve realized that uh, towards the end of his career but he simply wasn't good enough to to really do it which was a massive shame for Seve um but yeah I'm, I'm, I mean I, we all wish Tiger all the best from over here he's uh, he's an icon second best player of all time <laughs> Yeah, you've made, you, you've made it clear that that that, that in the debate uh, you, your your colours are nailed to the mast there, uh, Mark. You reckon uh, you reckon Nicholas the, the best of all time? Obviously, he has the eighteen majors versus uh, Tiger's fifteen. But any other thoughts and or justification as to why you you say he's the best of all time? It was it was always right through the seventies, eighties. Everyone was ranked on how many majors you won, and the top players were most instrumental in saying that. Uh, so um, you know they've they've made their bed, and um, that's how it is. I, I think we go on what they've always said: number of majors. And I think Tiger should have beaten Nicholas's. Um, I think if he had Nicholas's head, uh, Tiger would have beaten eighteen majors without question. And Nicholas was brilliant uh, between the ears. Uh, you know, Tiger's got unbelievable flashes of genius between his ears, but I think ultimately he's sort of been derailed a bit at times in his career and found it difficult. But um, Nicholas was, um, uh, you know, mentally was um, absolutely uh, incredibly good. And, uh, and uh, he was, a, well, not Tiger's, I like Tiger, but uh, Nicholas was a great guy. I played a lot with him. Well, not a lot, but probably six or eight times in things, the British Open or Ryder Cups. And uh, I always enjoyed Jack's company. He's uh, a good sense of humor, nice guy. A couple of weeks away from the Masters. We've just finished it. But uh, Masters 2021, uh, who do you like for that? 
hard to look past Dustin Johnson at the moment, isn't it? But um, yeah, I mean, I, I think the European guys, we need to see some form from them. Um, but at the moment, um, Johnson, Spieth and Thomas are, are, are looking um, as, as Spieth it looks as though he's coming back to form. And when he starts to get uh, a, a bit of a sniff in majors, he suddenly, uh, you know, he, he suddenly starts performing. So, yeah, those three are the ones to beat um, right now. Uh, Johnson is incredible. Uh, I mean, what an action. I mean, you know, he gets 140 degree shoulder turn. And, and I just love that left wrist. I mean, it just the left wrist just doesn't move from the top of the swing through to three, four feet past impact. It's just a, an incredible action. Modern, uh, just brilliant. Mark, I think that um, you and I could fit our entire swings into Dustin Johnson's backswing. <laughs> and you made me look as though I had a long swing, Hazy, so I always like playing <laughs> with you. <laughs> What about Rory McIlroy? I I like to think Rory's got the desire to um, to do incredibly well because he's a really nice guy. Only he knows whether he has or not. He sometimes gives the impression of being a little. Uh, it doesn't really matter. But then a lot of players do. Uh, so I, I I hope he has got that desire because um, you know he was uh, amazing in, uh, for a while. Uh, I think he's definitely got majors left in him. Uh, it's just. Um, a question of when, and um, I don't think he's that bad with the putter at all. He seems to put okay. I don't know. It's, it's just something missing, but I think it's there. We know, we've seen it before, so yeah. I just hope it uh, resurfaces. Um, I, he still plays incredibly freely at times, and when he starts playing like that, it's magnificent to watch. Um, I, you know, he, he's got to find the right way of playing, not put too much pressure on himself, but put enough to 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 really want it. Uh, but you know, it's easy to pick holes. You know, sometimes you can get unlucky and just, uh, you know, things happen. And who knows? Uh, it, it's hard to quantify sometimes why players don't perform as you wish they would. It just seems we're living in an age now. There's just so many guys that could go out and, yeah, you highlight three there. But, I mean, gee whiz, you look at who wins on the PGA Tour and how many talented guys there are. There. It is so difficult to pick a winner at the moment. Yeah, there's a lot of talent, isn't there? And there's a lot of there's a lot of talent both sides of the Atlantic. You know, um, I, I think what Tyrrell Hatton's done in the past uh, few years, he's really moved up a level, which is fantastic. That win at Bay Hill last year and uh, uh, other stuff is, is um, you know, and I, I, he's uh, he's improving his action as well. He looked a lot more static from the waist down through impact when I saw him the other week uh, playing, and uh, you know, he's obviously just chipping away at. Uh, and that's all most of us can do, chip away at the, our sort of the things that are, are not quite right over the years. And unless you're a Seve, Seve could just suddenly swing it however he wanted uh, most of his career until his back stopped him from doing that. Um, but most of us, and I, I suspect uh, the, the smooth swinging hazy is a bit like that. To, to try to change is very, very difficult. One question I have to ask you before we let you go is, uh, how's that <laughs> seagull doing that you... <laughs> Hit at St Andrews a few years ago. Uh, unfortunately, living a very happy life in Fife. <laughs> I was uh, I was a bit bored the other day, so I went to YouTube and watched the video. Yes, uh, yes, yes. I, I do that now. Yes, it's a really good laugh, isn't it? That video. <laughs> Jeez, yeah. I was, we had John Paramore on last week and I was <laughs> talking rules and I just said, I mean, the, the game can be very cruel sometimes. That was one of them. 
You, you know, that's the second time that's happened to me. The first time was in Doral in about 1979 in the States. Uh, and I hit a nine iron to the green, going right for the middle of the green. And it hit a, a bird uh, three quarters of the way up and <laughs> shot right into a lake. Cost me a double bogey. And, and that one, uh, I ended up making triple, but it cost me two shots. But that's the only two times it's happened to me in my whole career. And both times I was playing with Sandy Lyle. So, um, <laughs> There's something in there. He came off our Christmas card list, put it that way. <laughs> oh, jeez, I laughed at that. <laughs> Full on. Boom. Out of bounds. Oh, jeez. Oh, very funny. <laughs> Um, what is the what does the future hold for for Mark James? Are you what's happening with the commentating? We're so used to hearing you on on Sky. What's what's happening there? I'm taking um, a bit of a backseat from commentary uh, this year. I'm, uh, we've relaunched the senior tour in Europe as the Legends Tour. Um, I'm uh, one of the ambassadors for it, so I'll be playing about. Uh, seven or eight events at least uh, on the Legends Tour this season when it, when it gets going, which will probably be July because um, we're, um, we're doing pretty well on vaccinations here. I've had mine the other week, no side effects. Uh, so everything, everything's looking good. Um, uh, so, yeah, not so much commentary this year, uh, uh, more playing and um, this and that, really. Yeah. Uh, you know, course design course design's tough at the moment because uh, not many courses are being built and... Uh, of course, with COVID. Yeah, I saw some promotional work that you did for that uh, with, I think it was Ian Woosnam uh, and a couple of other guys. It looks brilliant. Where was that? You were there, there some of the presenters walking around with you and you played a couple of holes and I think... I think oh, was... yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry. Yes, yes, yes. Down at Wentworth. Absolutely. Right. I've forgotten that. Uh, it's been so busy over lockdown. No, it's that, that vaccine. Uh, you know, no side effects. Yeah, right. Blur of... It's, it's, it's that, that also happens at the seniors too. Guys tend to forget things. <laughs> Yes, indeed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just looking forward to 2019. Yeah. <laughs> oh, what's your handicap? Well, I've got the titanium hip, uh, gout, <laughs> and, a, and a gammy arm. That's about it. Yeah, that's that, that's that's described. That describes the fittest guy out there. <laughs> Uh, well, Mark, it's, it's been so nice having you on our podcast. Thank you for yeah. for giving of your time, and uh, yeah, it really be nice to, to to chat to you. I've always enjoyed you on commentary and your insights and your subtle jibes and humour, and I think it's just brilliant. And uh, good luck with with your ambassadorial work and on, on on the seniors tour as well this year. Thanks, guys. I've enjoyed it. Thanks yeah, for having th- me on. There it is. A win for the ages. The long and short of it. Simon Hill and Dylan Rogers. Thanks for listening. We'd ask our friends, except we don't have any. So please like and rate this podcast. Until next time.